How's it going, everyone? My name is Scott Bennett, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 8 of the Third Decade Podcast. Today, we're going to explore money and, and some of the issues uh, that people have with shame and money. Um, shame and money is a very common thing in our society, and we see it quite a lot with Third Decade. I think it's one of the reasons the program has been successful. We really try and create an environment where people feel comfortable to talk about money and the issues they've had with it before and and create an outlet that, that they can do that that we don't think really exists in many other places. So Nikki Wolf is our program manager of the third decade and is really the, the reason there even is a third decade podcast. Not only does she record uh, the episodes and edits all of my stumbles and ums that she can, but she also really just pushed for the idea of having this be another means of communication for our participants. So we were brainstorming about, you know, the different topics and things we could touch on in this podcast, and money and shame was one of them that, that Nikki brought up herself. She said, I think this is a really important thing to talk about. And we were we were going back and forth about who could maybe talk about that and who would be the best person to touch on it. And it popped into my head that Nikki herself would be an amazing person to touch on it. She, is, she has written a blog post about some of these topics we're going to touch on. And she is somebody who grew up with little to no discussion around money management in a positive way. And I think that's so common for so many of our participants. She's been really open about her own financial journey and where herself and her husband, Colin, um, where they've gone together. And so it just made sense that she would be the perfect guest to help us unpack some of this. As I touched on, her and Colin kind of joined this journey together. And, and at a very young age, they decided together, you know, we want to take control of our finances and kind of head in a different trajectory than we might have been on when we were uh, at a very young age. Nikki, are you there? I'm here, Scott. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be a part of this in a different capacity this time. Yeah, I, I, inviting is a nice word. Uh, I'm glad you agreed to do it, and I'm really excited to dive in. So as, as you know, you know, we launched the third decade because we felt like the information we teach and mentor on concerning financial confidence wasn't widely available and even less so understood and for young people. Um, and I think that's a fact that almost everybody across the board would agree on. It's one of the, the universal facts uh, that we have these days is that young people generally don't understand or have much confidence in their own personal finance. So if that's the case, right, if most majority of young people are entering the professional world not knowing this stuff, why do you think that there is so much shame? Or in other words, why are we so afraid to admit not knowing what most everyone else also doesn't know. You know, I think we all feel like we're the exception. Yeah. Like we somehow know less than the average person, and some of us don't know a lot, and it feels embarrassing to admit that. So we just kind of try to avoid it at all costs. Um, but I really believe there are a few ways that this kind of shame around money happens. You either grow up kind of being a wealthy kid, or you grow up in a wealthy family, and they don't want to flaunt that, so they tell you that money is taboo to talk about. Or you grow up poor and you feel embarrassed about that, so you kind of do anything you can to avoid the topic. Or you just grow up in a home where generationally it's been taught that it's rude to talk about finances. 
of course, there's a time and a place for it. You don't want to go over to your wealthy uncle's house and ask how much he makes in a year. But it's also not bad to start breaking down certain barriers to begin understanding kind of the reality of the financial world we live in. One instance of this that I can speak to is that I, I speak really openly with my friends who feel this like incessant need to like buy a house. Like regardless of their, their financial situation, they believe that's just kind of the right thing to do. And that's obviously something we talk about in third decade is sometimes that might be the case, but sometimes it might not. Like if you're already finding yourself living paycheck to paycheck, you might not want to be buying a house, even if you can afford it. If you have unexpected repairs, that can be financial devastation to you. So really one of the things that I talk very openly with about my my friends who want to buy a house and feel like they need to buy a house is I tell them exactly how much we spent in our first year of homeownership, just uh-huh. unnecessary repairs. I don't think a lot of people, especially young people, really understand kind of what they're signing up for when they commit to certain financial decisions. Yeah, and, and that's so rare of you, right? I don't think I know anybody who's who's going around talking that way. Yeah, I also don't think most people probably have a spreadsheet that they can actually look back at and reference and know exactly how much they spent. Very true. And that's, you know, something we'll probably talk about today. But um, so really, I just do what I can to break down that barrier and kind of just speak openly about a real experience so that at that point they can make a really well-informed decision, but just so that they have all the facts before they do that. So, Uh, So knowing you now, that's not surprising at all. Right, and I can't picture you any other way than being completely on top of and, and open about your finances. Were you always that way, you know, growing up and stuff? Were you always that open and, and curious and willing to talk about financial stuff? You know, as far as finances go, I kind of just always erred on the side of better safe than sorry. So from a pretty young age, I learned to maintain kind of a buffer of savings in case anything unexpected happened. And then that sort of evolved out of more necessity when I got older. Hmm. So I received, since, since we're talking about money and shame, I'll speak really openly about this uh, in case there's anybody out here who might maybe be living this right now or maybe has in the past that can relate to it. But um, I had to learn to live on a very small amount of money for my years in college. So I received a scholarship to go to the U of A, and it accounted for some things in addition to tuition, which I feel very fortunate to have gotten, um, but I knew I wouldn't be able to call on my family for help. So whenever I got that scholarship, basically the money that I had to work with from my yearly expenses was $12,000. So I had to literally learn how to live on $12,000 a year for four years. Wow. So I guess, like I said, it really was out of necessity. I knew that um, for at least the first couple of years of college, I didn't really have time to work like a part-time job on top of that. So I had to really like $12,000 divided by 12. Okay, how am I going to fit $1,000 a month? I'm going to find a roommate that can split a cheap apartment in a kind of shady area of town. (laughs) I'm going to drive the car that I bought when I was 17 years old, um, which I'm still driving to this day. Um, I'm, you know, just different ways to, keep my expenses as low as possible um, just as a way to still be able to maintain that savings because, again, life's unpredictable. I didn't know if I was going to get sick or hurt or something would happen to, you know, have to help a family member in, like, an emergency situation. So I, even though there were times where I maybe had a few thousand dollars in savings, 
I still chose to live on that $1,000 a month because I knew that it was important to me to keep that stability and kind of that backup plan if I needed it. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it's clear that, you know, you you chose that from, from the beginning. I think most 18-year-olds, especially an 18-year-old with a scholarship, says, oh, yeah, I did a lot of work to get this. Let me take out some loans or something like that, Absolutely. which is an okay decision as well. But how did you come to that conclusion? You know, how did well, you say 12000 is it? One of the financial things that was taught to me growing up was really not to borrow money if you don't have to. And I didn't see that as an emergency. I, you know, if, if it had been $3,000 a year, that may have been a different situation. I obviously can't live on that dollar amount per year without some other help, whether that would be working to supplement or not. But I, I did the math on my expenses, my absolute necessary expenses, and I was able to actually keep them below that threshold so I knew that I didn't have to take out loans if I didn't want to. And I definitely didn't want to. Um, and post-graduation, I was really grateful to be able to kind of wash my hands of that. And I know that's obviously a fortunate circumstance to have at this point in time with so many people having student debt. But because I had the choice in that, I really didn't want to kind of mess it up. Mm. Um, what's interesting, though, is is to see I saw examples of friends that got the exact same scholarship that I did had the same opportunities to, you know, do with it what, what they chose to do. And one of those friends, like, bought annual Disneyland passes every year. And one of those friends went on crazy vacations in, like, tropical islands every year. And therefore, they took out student loans. Um, and, of course, those are really fun, great things to have. But it also, it it produces a different result. And if they're okay with that, then that's their decision. But I just knew that I didn't want that to kind of like haunt me after the fact that I wanted to be able to to use it as the gift that it was meant to be and yeah. to be able to help it, to be able to allow it to help me get a leg up before I started kind of my, my working career. So really within, within six months of graduation, Colin and I both um, began our first jobs. And I kind of always had the basics down, save some, live on less than you make, but I didn't really want to touch investing because it intimidated me too much. Yeah. Um, this was around this, like around this time frame, I met a friend who referred me to the program, spoke really openly with me about her own finances, and it really invited a space to do that with somebody for the first time in my life, especially mm -hmm. somebody who knew more than me about it. Um, so you know, as I said, now I, I kind of try to be that person for my friends because I know it's really rare to have that openness about finances. And that's also been such a special part of what Third Decade does because being able to come into a classroom or a class setting with dozens of other people who are interested in, you know, securing their financial futures too, you kind of grow some support there. And then to, on top of that, have instructors that you can talk openly with, you have your mentor um, that you can ask really anything to about financially and to not have that judgment and just be able to have like open dialogue about it is really special because it's really hard yeah. to come by. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, even though you said you, you didn't have these conversations and, and stuff like that growing up, um, it sounds like, you know, you, you had the basics and, and that, you know, I, I found out in, 
being in this industry and talking with as many people as I talk to, that's sometimes just a little bit inherent. It's kind of built in who you are. It's, it's a piece of you. Um, but, you know, growing up, did, did you experience some money shame due to the circumstances of your upbringing? And how do you think the lack of, of conversation around money impacts the average person your age or, or even the average uh, kids your age growing up? Or did you, did you feel like you were part of the norm in that sense? You know, I personally didn't experience a lot of shame around it. I saw the people in my life experience shame around it, and I saw it act kind of as a divisive tool to avoid the topic altogether. Um, I think it really perpetuates the issue of a lack of knowledge surrounding how to build wealth to not to like to be scared of having these conversations. And I think it also creates the illusion that you're either going to be wealthy by default or you're going to be poor by default. Mm. And I really, I guess, kind of looking back at based off of the family that you came from, and really what I've learned is that no financial status is by default. Um, right. you, have to, you have the opportunity to make choices along the way. And, of course, I recognize the climb it can be if you're, if you're trying to escape, you know, the cycle of poverty, but it's possible. And it's also possible to come from a wealthy family and end up living paycheck to paycheck. I've, I've seen numerous friends come from high-earning households uh, with parents who have a really cozy retirement, and those same friends lack financial literacy, assuming one day, you know, they'll figure it out. And unfortunately, many of their parents just didn't teach them how they actually built their wealth, so it wasn't something passed on. So you touched on a little bit before that you're already kind of doing – you know, the, the absolute basis, then you then you came across the third decade or, or a friend shared the third decade with you and, and just having your first real conversation about money, which you're you're not out of the norm there. I, I even think to myself, um, not having real conversations about money until much later in life, you know, there was always the, the adages, you know, avoid debt and things like that, um, that I was lucky to have. But you know, a real, you know, plan or, or looking at in detail what I'm doing didn't happen till much later. So for you, as as you're doing the right things that you kind of knew intuitively to do, were you able to find other tools or things to help along with that? Were you looking, you know, did you identify kind of, all right, I want to avoid this path of not being financially secure? Were you seeking out tools and strategies to, to help build your confidence? You know, I, again, kind of in that same time frame when I turned 18 and went to college, I really started creating my own tools to do it. I have different generations of budgets that I look back on that I've created, which are really funny to look back on, very endearing, uh, just to see how much I used to spend on certain categories compared to, like, you know, what it's like as a, a full-time working adult now. Yeah, um, but I worked with what I had, and I created tools on the fly because I needed them, and I didn't know exactly where to find them. And then sometimes I'd find one, and it didn't seem to work quite right, so I just kind of developed it myself. So as of now, I work off of a budget that I created um, that measures a couple of things. I like to know what percentage of our income is being invested, and I like knowing how much under budget or over budget we are. So I have like two different columns drawn out where the first one is our budgeted plan. And the next column at the end of each month, I actually go enter in the actuals so that we can see exactly how much over or how much under we are. Uh, 
As far as the investing side goes, um, I automate this 100%. I, I never, like, have to go push through a manual contribution to my Roth IRA. I do it on a monthly basis on the same day every month so that I don't have to think about it, and it makes it so much more easy to stick to my plan yeah. rather than, you know, there are certain months where it would be really tempting. Like, maybe we have a few bigger expenses happen all in the same month. I don't want to look at our finances at the end of the month and decide that that's the thing we cut from um, and not make that investment. So that's why we we automate it. So as far as knowing how much under budget or over budget we are, we contribute to an account each month called whatever we want, which we literally use on whatever we want. But if we overspend one month, and like I said, I, I write in the actuals, to know exactly how much we do, I reimburse our checking accounts from that fund if we've overspent so that our checking accounts are always kind of in that safe range that we're comfortable with. And it also kind of goes as, like, it serves as a way to keep ourselves honest with our spending because the same goes being under budget. If we're under budget, we contribute that same dollar amount into the account. So it's kind of like a reward for ourselves. Sure. And it really incentivizes being responsible with it, but also knowing occasionally that, Things are out of our control, and if we absolutely need it, we have something to fall back on. This is in addition to our emergency savings. But sure, okay. Something, yeah. Again, though, like our investing is taken care of first thing, so we kind of know we're always taking care of our future selves. This is kind of our fun money pocket um, yeah. that we use as like a kind of a backup buffer that's like the step before actually getting into our emergency fund for something. Um, if cool. we are in a dire situation. Lastly, kind of the way that we actually track how under or over budget we are is I actually sit down every five to 10 days and I key in our expenses to the penny in an Excel spreadsheet broken down by category. So I call this our expenditure spreadsheet. And to some people it might seem a little bit extreme, but really there's nothing that makes you more acutely aware of where you're wasting your money than by doing that. It's yeah. also a great way of knowing if you need to adjust certain budget categories. So, for instance, if you tell yourself that you spend $300 a month on groceries and that's your budget, but if you do this and you find that you're consistently spending $500 a month on groceries, yeah. you might want to reevaluate if you can plan for that increase to your grocery spending rather than finding yourself in a deficit, like unexpected, every single month. Right. Um, so, really, I mean, it comes down really to four things for me have a buffer balance, know what your budgeted number is, automate your savings, and know exactly where your money is going. Yeah, and it's that, you know, attention to detail and stuff that I think a lot of us, myself included, can struggle with, um, but it's why, you know, we kind of have to continue to remind ourselves and, and, you know, map out those goals and map out what's important to you. It's so much easier to sit and do that if you know, that it's going towards something or if it gives you the freedom to have that whatever we want account and, and, and do stuff, real stuff with it. Absolutely. So it, and also serves as some peace of mind because there are some yeah. months where I feel like we're just hemorrhaging cash, especially owning a house and two cars. And like if there are multiple repairs needed in the same month, it's really nice to know like the the truth of the situation to say, you sure. know what? We did end up spending $400 more than we had planned for, but we have extra money. Let's reimburse it. Like, everything's fine. We still have all of our balances are intact. We're good to go. Rather than just, for me at least, 
being in this like uncertainty limbo of like things feel like we're spending a lot of money, but I don't actually know if we're in danger. Like this really allows us to know if we're in danger or if we're not. And kind of also, I know, I, I think we talked about this in Laura's episode, I think it's episode two, uh, permission to spend, yeah. knowing that like if you are shopping and you see something that like you'd really like to have, and it's not just like an impulse buy, or maybe it is an impulse buy, but you know that you already have money allocated to that category that's meant as like a, this is your fun money. If you want to do this, do it. And it's kind of like permission to not feel guilty about that. Definitely. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's it's much less a restrictive thought process that, that's usually aligned with budgeting that, you know, we, we see all the time people break out of. So with you and Colin, you know, it's so obvious that you two are a team and, and doing this together. But I think for so many people, shame and personal baggage around money, uh, especially if you came from different upbringings or different backgrounds, or if one person knows more than the other, it can be a really difficult thing to talk about with even the person closest to you. So how did you all get to that point? Have you always been open about money or did it take some work to say, hey, if we're going to be a team about this stuff, um, we need to we need to address it all head on? You know, thankfully, we've always been really transparent with one another. We've been really open to learning from one another in our experiences. Uh, because of my upbringing and my experience having to budget really since I was 18 years old, I probably had some of this stuff on my radar a little earlier than Colin did. Sure. Um, and he was always really open to like learning methods that I had for managing this but we've always had like a very open dialogue about it. I've really appreciated that. We were pretty aware early on, like way early on in our relationship, kind of how the other person viewed money, roughly, you know, how much we had, what our upbringings were. It really allowed us to be better partners and better friends to one another. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And and it's and it's obvious and it's, you know, um even though it came easy, I know for some people it doesn't. And um, that doesn't make it less important. Um, yeah. You know, we talked about it earlier in the episode, but you're not out of the norm if you feel some shame around money or shame around your lack of knowledge around money. It is, you are part of the norm if you feel that. We talk with people every day who feel that way. Even the people who know the most about it um, can have some shame around it and shame around, you know, the, the financial decisions they've made before that just compounds on itself when you're not talking about it. Um, yeah. And and over and over again, it is something that, you know, hopefully as a society we can make so much less of a taboo to have these conversations and, and to have people that you can turn to if, if they're not your parents. You know, we have some people in our program whose parents are in this industry and in financial advisors, but just because of their relationship, they don't talk about money. So uh, never assume that the person you're talking to on the other end has it all figured out because it's it's not always the case and everybody can learn something about other people's experiences. Absolutely. Cool. So talking about that and talking about shame and how people deal with it, do you have any advice for somebody who might might be having – it sounds like you were, you were able to, you know, uh, address – any shame or anything you've you've ever felt money-wise kind of head-on 
do you yeah. do you have any advice for for people who might be struggling with that? You know, I think my biggest piece of advice would be to find someone that you trust and ask them questions about money. Because especially if they're responsible with their earnings, you can't do that in just any relationship. But if you have a relationship in your life where that might be acceptable, start having those conversations. And if you feel like you might have some good insight, if a friend talks to you about finances, share what you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, got to start there and and think outside of the box and, and who that can be and kind of spread the wealth to everybody. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Nikki. I know anytime somebody talks about something this personal, it's difficult. And obviously the point of today's conversation was to break some of that a little bit. And and thanks for being one of the first people to mind that gap. Yeah, I'm happy to be able to do it. And I hope that this is, I hope that this speaks to somebody out there listening to this episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you enjoyed Nikki's unique perspective on this stuff. And and we hope to bring more and more people and different stories, diverse stories to our conversations of people surrounding money. So if any participants out there have a story they'd like to share, have a different piece of information or advice, it's a huge piece of the third decade. The third decade, every year, it seems like we add something new to our curriculum that a participant has brought up. And I want this podcast, the really goal of it, is to have this this podcast serve as a space to do that as well. So please reach out to us. There's a link on, on every announcement of the podcast that you can go to, to to send us ideas or topics, or you can reach out to us by email at info at thirddecade.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will talk in a couple weeks.